You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. Welcome. It is so good to be with all of you. Uh, My name is Pastor Mark. If we haven't yet met, uh, please come say hi after. I would love uh, to meet you. I also want to give a special welcome um, this Sunday and just let you know how grateful I am for all of you who made it here to church today, even though it took everything just to get here. Right? And I know that for some of you, you're in that spot that could be physically, that could be emotionally, that could be spiritually. And um, yeah, I just know that that's where some of you are at this week. And so I just want you to know I'm so grateful that you did what was good for you, even though it was hard. And I'm so grateful for those of you who are running hard after God, even though life right now is really, really hard. I just want to encourage you to keep doing the things that God tells you are good for you, even when life is hard. Also, before we get into um, Galatians chapter 2, I just want to make one more quick announcement. We are really excited that we are planning to have another baptism, probably uh, closer to the end of November. And so you, if you are a believer that has not yet been baptized, we want to encourage you to do so, right? Remember that baptism is an outward expression. It's an outward demonstration of an inward transformation, right? It's a picture of you being dead in your sins and being made alive with Christ. It's a picture of what God did in your heart. And it's you telling everyone, hey, look, I am a Christian. And this is the pattern that we see in the New Testament, right? To believe, right? For God to do that work in your heart, to move you from death to life, and then to be baptized, to show other people, this is what God has done in my life. Baptism doesn't save you, but it's a step of obedience that God asks us to do. And as believers, when we've been brought from death to life, we want to obey God. And so if you're in that spot where you're a believer but you've not yet been baptized, uh, please talk to one of the elders or contact the office and one of the elders uh, will meet with you. We can't promise it'll be your favorite elder, uh, but, but one of us will come uh, and we would, we would love to make sure you know what you're doing, look at God's word together. And uh, we'd love to hear how Jesus changed your life, ask some questions of you and to hear about how you're following God. And then we're excited to get you dunked in the hot tub Um, It'll be nice and warm, a lot warmer than Whitney's baptism at the end of September there in Gull Lake, and uh, so that's really exciting. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive into Galatians chapter 2 this morning. Lord, we come before you and just echo what we sang, um, that we need you desperately right now. God, we come with that posture of our heart knowing that we all um, need your forgiveness And even as Christians, we still need your forgiveness, God, all the time. Um, Not because we're not saved, um, but because we sin against a holy God over and over and over again. And so, God, we're so thankful for your grace. We're so thankful for your mercy. And we just admit that we need your compassion. We need your love. We need your forgiveness. And we need it all desperately. We also come before you and we we pray for um, the situation in the Middle East. Lord, we pray against the evil of Hamas and the attacks that they have done. Lord, we pray for the Christians that are in the Middle East, both in Israel and in Palestine. God, I pray that they would 
um, that you would be with them, that they would cling to your word in moments of intense um, pain and upheaval, God, in their lives. We pray that you would be with them. God, as Christians, we just come and acknowledge that our hearts mourn to see on, on the news and through social media all of the death and destruction as men, women, children are torn apart by war. God, that, that breaks our hearts, Lord. And we look forward to the day uh, when you come back and you remove all sin from the world and you make all things new, Lord. And so we, we look forward to that day. God, and we just pray that you would be with us now um, because we need you, God, in our lives to heal our brokenness and our pain. God, would we, would we rely on you for everything, for our strength? God, we love you in your name. Amen. All right, let's read Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. I encourage you to open your Bible there, but we'll also have it on the screen This is what it says. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. In Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died so that I might live to God, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if its righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's start by looking at verses 11 through 14. We'll break it down a little bit. And I want to ask you this question, what's the basic problem? And I want to encourage you, just like Dustin encouraged us a few weeks ago, to really engage your brain as we're reading God's Word. I pray that you would be maybe even asking yourself some of these questions, trying to anticipate what I might ask you to consider from the front. And so as you look here at our text and we see um, the basic problem in 11 through 14, especially and then moving on down, it's the same issue that Paul was fighting for last week, isn't it? What's he fighting for? He's fighting for the truth of the gospel, right? Last week was more in the theological realm, right? And when we talk about the theological realm, when we talk about theology, basically theology very simply is just what you think about God, right? It's having thoughts about God. Okay, and so knowing about God, and so everybody has thoughts about God. So congratulations, you're all theologians, right? So you can add it to your resume, right? You can add it when people ask you, even up to this year at Christmas and you see people, tell them, hey, guess what? My pastor just told me I'm a theologian, 
right? Because we all are theologians. We all have thoughts about God. The question is, are you a good theologian or are you not? And this is why it's imperative that we read God's word and we study it together, that we would have right thoughts about who God is because that changes how we live, right? And so theology, it has a purpose, right? And Thomas Aquinas alludes to that when he says this, theology teaches of God, is taught by God, and leads to God, right? That's the purpose in having thoughts about God and learning more about him. The goal is not that we would just stack knowledge, right? But that we would actually know God and experience joy in God. This is the purpose of theology. But as we come back to our text, what's the basic problem? And so last week, like we said, the text was centered around theology. So what did we see? We saw Paul, Barnabas, and Titus sitting down with Peter, James, and John to ensure that they were on the same page regarding their understanding of the gospel, right? And trying to make sure that they, their understanding of what Jesus dying on the cross Um, meant in their understanding of salvation history. They wanted to make sure that they were on the same page. Do you remember what Paul said last week in our text? He said, they added nothing to my understanding of the gospel. And so AKA, what did he say? He said, AKA, we agreed intellectually as we discussed theology, right? They, They agreed in principle that they believe the same things about God and the gospel, But this week, as we look at our text in 11 through 14, Paul's not just going to contend for the gospel in terms of theology. Instead, Paul's going to contend for the truth of the gospel in terms of right living. Because um, there's a connection between the two, right? And that's that right theology, right thinking about God should lead to right living, right? So right knowing of God should lead to right living, And it leads to a lot more than that. Those are other sermons. We're not going there this morning. But let's look at this question. When we say it should lead to right living, we talked about theology. What does right living mean? When we say right living, we mean this. We mean obedience to God's word, right, found in the Bible. And when we live obedient to God's word, what is that? It's worship. That's what worship is. It's obedience to God's word. And let me show you very practically what this looks like and see the connection, right? Because when we, when we worship through obedience, when we do something that's according to God's word, we proclaim with our lives God to be wise, right? We proclaim with our, with our lives um, that we trust God. We proclaim with our lives God is sovereign, We proclaim with our lives, he is good, right? And you could go on and on and on on that list. What are you doing with your life? You're demonstrating theology, right? When you go to pray, right, that says something about your understanding of God, right? Because he has asked us to pray, right? And people wrestle and struggle and say, why do we pray? It feels like I'm just talking to the air, right? It's a right understanding of God that is a connection to how we live, right? Theology should lead to right living. And that's the heart of the matter in this passage that Paul's going to argue to Peter. Look at the text with me. So in verse 11, Paul opposes Peter and he says, because you stand condemned, right? And condemned, he, what he really means by is by God. He's, you're condemned by God. You're wrong um, because of your actions. And what were his actions, right? Look at verses 12 and 13. Right? He used to eat with Gentiles. Right? And Gentiles is simply anyone who's not a Jew. 
right? Most of us in this room were Gentiles, right? So he's saying you used to eat with Gentiles, and then all of a sudden, what happened? He stopped. Why? Because he feared men more than he feared God. And because he's a leader in the church, what happened? The rest of these Jewish Christians that were in the church, and even Barnabas, one of Paul's close friends, they went astray and they did the same thing. You say to me, Mark, I think we need to unpack that a little bit more. And I'm like, you're right. Let's study this together. So remember when I told you last week, um, one of the things happening in the early church as we read, right, in history, is that all these churches were starting up, right? And the church of Antioch was one of these churches, And like many other churches that we talked about last week, it was like a laboratory for Jewish and Gentile relationships in the early church because God was saving people from both walks of life and both backgrounds. And so as these Jews had come to faith in Christ, they realized that one of the barriers that had been removed through Christ was the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. And so very practically what that looked like for them was sharing meals together. Right? No longer as Jew and Gentile, but in unity as Christians. Right? That's what that looked like. But then what happens, these people claiming to be from James, um, there's debate among scholars, just so you know, about if they were actually from James or not. I feel more likely they weren't. They were just claiming it just because of everything that we know of James. Um, but they came to Peter and they said, what are you doing eating with Gentiles? This is not what a good Jew does. And let's just pause there for a second because you're probably thinking, why? Why is that something that a good Jew would do? Let me show you a few passages. So um, in Deuteronomy, we know that Deuteronomy is one of the books of the law. And part of what they're given in the law is they're given the command not to intermarry. The Jews weren't supposed to intermarry with Gentiles. Right? And so they were also given a lot of laws, right? Remember your favorite books, Leviticus, right? Deuteronomy. In, the, in your favorite books, they're given lots of laws about foods that are clean and unclean, um, other things for your body that are clean, unclean. They're given commands not to mix with other nations. And why was that, right? They were to show themselves to be set apart as God's people, as the nation of Israel, Right? And so we see that there. And then we jump to the New Testament, and we see what, how this played out in the Jewish custom. In John 18, 28, it says this, Then they, the, the they are Jews, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. Why? So that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And so then we see the Jewish custom. Right, coming out of that, and to the best of my understanding, this was born out of the desire. The reason that they created this custom was they wanted to follow these laws not to become unclean, right? And so there's not like a specific law that I could find where God says, never eat with Gentiles. But this was a custom that they had created trying to do what they felt God wanted them to do. And we see the same thing here in Acts 10, 28. And he said to them, you yourselves, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That text is the flip in the understanding of this here. Um, Daryl Bach sums it up this way. He said, the concern was a Jewish person would become unclean during the visit with a Gentile who had contact with unclean food and other types of uncleanness from the viewpoint of the Torah. Right? Torah, first five books of the Bible. 
right? So if we remember all those laws in Leviticus, right, in Deuteronomy, right, again, showing that the people were supposed to be set apart, right, different as God's people. And so a zealous Jew trying to be really good, they wouldn't eat with Gentiles. So that's the background to our discussion. Now we look at verse 14 and look at what it says. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, right? That's what compels Paul to rebuke Peter. He says, your conduct, the way that you're living, isn't in step with the truth that you know about God, right? He said, he saw that right theology wasn't leading to right living. And so what does he do, right? Look at the um, next verse there. He rebukes Peter, right? And this is what he tells him. He says, even though you're a Jew, right? You had given up the Jewish way of life. You've given up the Jewish way of thinking when you accepted the good news of the gospel. So now you're actually living more like a Gentile, right? And so Paul says to Peter, then how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews, right? He's trying to tell people, to tell Peter, you're eating with Gentiles. That was actually right in light of the gospel. That's what you were supposed to be doing. There's no barrier, right? We're all one in Jesus. They are God's people, just as Jewish Christians are people, right? They're not second-class Christians. So when you stopped, you condemned yourself. You added the law back to the grace of God, and this is wrong. And I want us to stop there for a moment and think about biblical community. The first time I was writing this section, I started with the words biblical friendship. And while it's entirely possible that Peter um, and Paul were friends, it's very doubtful that they were best friends forever, right? And so the reason that I bring that up is because I think it relates to the topic of rebuke. And so you're like, I don't even know what that word rebuke means. Rebuke is something that we know very little of in our day. It's a lost part of biblical community. And the reason I rewrote this to say biblical community is because it's much more likely that that's what was happening here, right? We have Paul, who's a Christian, rebuking Peter, who's a Christian, even though most likely they're not bros, right? So because he's strayed off of the straight and narrow path, that's why he goes and rebukes him. And that phrase, not in step, that we looked at a second ago, that actually comes, um, the root word of that is the same Greek word that we get orthopedics from. And it literally means in Greek to walk straight, right? And so because he was not walking straight along the path, right, in step with the gospel, that's why he was rebuked. And so we have a Christian who's unlikely, very unlikely best friends, rebuking another Christian. My question is how often does that happen? us? How often is that your experience, even in the church? So let's start with the easier test and work our way out to the harder one. When is the last time, in love, you were able to show your spouse or one of your best Christian friends that they were straying off of that narrow path, right, and following God, right? When's the last time that you rebuke somebody, here's the key, well, right? Not the last time you rebuke somebody, but when's the last time you did it well, right? In gentleness and in love and with gospel intention. This is something that's not very common, is it? And if you don't have a good answer to the question, if something didn't spring into your head, then you already know the application, right? I don't have to tell you what it is. And if you do have a good answer, then praise God, 
right? Praise God for your courage and also praise God for those people in your life that allowed you to do those things that God wants us to do. Uh, Last weekend, my wife Maddie was at a cottage with two um, friends who have been lifelong Christian friends um, back from where we grew up. And one of my favorite parts of their friendship is that they are all both willing to rebuke one another and to receive rebuke from one another, knowing that it's out of love and for the good of the gospel in their lives. And so as a husband, I love when Maddie hangs out with those friends, right? You know, as a husband, sometimes there's people you're like, I don't know if you should hang out with them, right? But you love when she goes and hangs out with these friends, and I'm extra willing to do what it takes to help them to hang out together, right? Because I know that my wife's going to come back encouraged and come back challenged, and she's going to grow, and that is so cool. And so this weekend, she came back encouraged, and I have permission to share this. I'm not getting in trouble. Um, she, had, she had been encouraged to be more disciplined in how she structures her life, right? And when she goes to bed, right? And how much time she spends on Instagram at night so that she can wake up earlier in the morning. And the goal of restructuring her life is to make sure that she has more time to grow spiritually disciplined in her Bible reading and not just have five minutes to read it, but to actually study it. Right? And then to maybe read another book that she would grow in her knowledge of God, knowing that she is a theologian. Right? And as we talked, um, Maddie told me that two things really compelled her to do this. She was challenged, almost rebuked, just by her friends' lives in listening to them talk. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that before, but sometimes just in listening to how other people are following God, that just compels you in your soul to go, oh man. Right? I want to know more about that because I am not there yet. And then, but they didn't just leave it there. Right? They were like, oh yeah, my life will be enough. No. What, do, what does a really good friend do? They kindly but strongly rebuked her right, as, as she shared her life. Right? And they saw the same things that she already had felt in their, her heart as she was wrestling with them. Right? Realizing that there's changes that she needed to make. Changes that they were experiencing the goodness of God out of. And she wanted the same thing. And so she did them, right? That's the key to the whole thing too, right? Now she's done them, right? And praise God for that. And so this is, if this is an area that you struggle with, I want to encourage you, right? This area of rebuke to start with your spouse and your best friends, best Christian friends. Because we can be really honest, what I'm asking you to do is really, really hard, right? This is a really, really hard thing to do. It's not something that we're overly comfortable with, Right? both in being willing to rebuke and also to have an openness to being rebuked, and here's the key, by imperfect people. Right? Because what often happens, what's our first reaction, if you do happen to experience this, what's often your first reaction when you get rebuked by someone? Right? Because we're really horrible sinners, what happens? We think of all the places in our head where they're falling short of God's absolute perfection and we can't wait to rebuke them back. Right? And maybe we're really holy and we only rebuke them in our head, right? And we don't actually say it to their face, right? That's what happens because we're really horrible sinners, right? Is this a good pattern, right? No, right? And we know from the awkward laughter, right? And this is something that I have been praying God would grow in me over these uh, last couple years. And it's far from perfect. Um, In fact, I screwed it up yesterday. the Lord in his graciousness gave me a sermon analogy um, based on myself. Um, I went with right words, um, done gently, uh, with gospel intention, 
but with really bad, really insensitive timing. And so I hurt my wife, and I needed to apologize for that. I had 90% of the stuff I'm trying to preach to you, and I still screwed it up, right? It's not an easy thing to do, right? But I think it's certainly much better than it has been, and you can talk to Maddie after the service to see if I'm stretching the truth or not. And if you want to grow in this way, which I would compel you to say I think you should, because God's word's calling you to do, it's part of spiritually maturing, then I want to encourage you in two different ways, right? One, if you're married with your spouse, I would encourage you to structure time in your life where you are ready and willing to listen, right, to what they would say so that you can do this well, right? Because when we're ready to receive rebuke, um, we do a lot better, right? Because one's the one time in our lives where we're really good at rebuke. There's only one time for most people, and it's when you're fighting, right, with your spouse, right? In that moment, right, in the heat of the moment, you're really good to show them where they're falling short of God's glory, right? And you can't wait to tell them about it, right? But it's the wrong spot, because how often does that ever land on a soft, repentant heart in your situation? Ever experienced that, right? And how often has that come out of your mouth with gentleness and love and gospel intention, I think we're all probably batting about 0% on that one, too. And for your friends, I would encourage you in this. Demonstrate openness to rebuke by actually asking for it, right? Ask where they see that you need to grow in your life. And here's the key. They need to know you well enough so they can actually offer something good, right? So that means you need to be willing and honest and humble to be known by your friends. Ask them to pray for you. Ask them to see if God would show them something in your life that he wants to change. This is going to mold your friendship into something even deeper and more biblical. And it's a way quicker way for spiritual growth. And it's going to offer way quicker depth of friendship. And if this is already an area that you're good at, I would encourage you in the Holy Spirit um, to ask the Holy Spirit to help you grow in an area that's even harder, right? And that's inviting rebuke from people that you're not tight with, right? That aren't your best friends, that aren't... um, your spouse, because that's what we're seeing here in this text, right? Having courage to sit down with another Christian who you can clearly see has gone off the straight and narrow path in some way and gently but firmly contend for the truth of the gospel in their life out of love. As elders, we can attest to this in a number of different facts, um, but two of them are this. Um, A, um, this is one of the hardest parts of our job um, to, to come to people. It's really hard. Um, but it's also one of the most necessary parts of being a leader, right? And this is something that I would contend that God has called all of us to do. And we've seen God call all of us to be leaders in certain ways. Um, and B, I think this is one of the largest reasons that we don't see people mature at a healthy rate as Christians, right? When our little mini humans don't mature at a good healthy rate, what happens? We get concerned and we put plans in place to help them. But for many Christians, we're not growing as fast as we should be because of this, right? Because we're unwilling to receive rebuke, right? And we're rarely willing to do this for each other, right? And I think part of the reason why is because it goes from one hard thing to another. Because what if we receive the rebuke, what does that go to next? Confession, right? Something else that's really, really hard that we also suck at, right? We're not good at it, right? It's something else that we struggle with. And so it becomes this really foreign and awkward thing, right? That something people will push off and avoid rather than something beautiful in God honoring, 
But when people do this well, and I have seen people in this church do this really well, and I praise God for you, because I've watched God flip people's lives upside down because of this, because of rebuke and confession, and that is a beautiful thing. And God gets glory over and over again, and he's still getting glory out of some of those people's lives as God changed them in those moments, because these kinds of Christians demonstrate that their identity is in Christ, right? When we're willing to have our pride torn down, our weakness and sin exposed, right, for the sake of the gospel and God's glory, why do we let the people do that? Because we aren't worried what other people think. Because where's our identity? Who do we care about? What he thinks of us? God, right? That's what allows you to do this. When you care about what God thinks, not what other people think. And in what God says about you, Right In having that identity in Christ, what happens? Now all of a sudden, you're only concerned with your brothers and sisters that they would grow and that God would get glory. So even if that means magnifying your own weaknesses, you're like Kat. We didn't ask her to do that. We didn't say you have to get up. She said, I want to. I want to get up and show people the good gift of confession because it's been so powerful in my life. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a very beautiful thing. And as we move into verses 15 through 21, we see the core of Paul's argument, right? We see why he's so strong in rebuking Peter, right? He tells the Galatians the essence of what he was trying to convey to Peter in his rebuke. He said, Christ died for a reason, right? Do you see it there? Right? I, I gave it the flip version. I do not nullify the grace of God. Right? This is him summing up everything. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So what's he trying to contend to? He's trying to say, Jesus died for a reason. Don't make him die for nothing. Right? It's by the grace of God that we don't need to add anything to the gospel. Right? And we know from our series already that if you add something to the gospel, what does that make it? It makes it a false gospel. Something that's not true and will lead people astray. The blood of Jesus is enough. And some of you need to hear that today. So look at me when I tell you the word of God is telling you that the blood of Jesus is enough. For the sin that you are ashamed of, that maybe you've hid for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. God loves you and has forgiven you for that if you're willing to accept his gift. And as Christians, you might have accepted Christ, but now you're adding to the gospel by not accepting his forgiveness again where you failed and fallen short. We can't keep adding to the gospel. The blood of Jesus is enough. If we think that we still need to earn the favor of God, then Christ died for no reason right? Instead of what we know is right, right? Instead of that right theology um, should lead to right living, it doesn't always, does it? And now we say right theology should lead to right living because it doesn't always happen. Peter got off the path, and sometimes we get off the path too, don't we, right? We wouldn't say that we like to add to the gospel, but sometimes we do. Sometimes we create our own false Gospels, and I want your brain to engage with me and think about maybe areas where maybe you have done this in your life. And I'm going to give you a few examples just to help you to spur your brain forward. The first is this sometimes we create a gospel, a false gospel of gospel plus comfort. And it goes something like this 
because Jesus loves me, that's good theology, because Jesus does love you, he wants my life to be easy. Bad theology. And anything where life is not easy, it's something that we view as it needs to be prayed against because it can't possibly be from God, right? And that's just not true, right? Remember what the Apostle Paul said as he served Jesus in Philippians 4. He said, I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. If you remember in Ecclesiastes, what else does it tell us? It says, better to be in a house of mourning than in a house of feasting. Why would we say something like that? Because most of the time, we grow closer to God in our pain and in suffering than we do in the ease of life. And so there's all kinds of reasons why we experience pain and suffering. Some of it's our own sin. Some of it's other people's sin that is done to us. Sometimes it's living in a sinful world. But God doesn't always choose to take us out of that pain, right? Knowing one day he's going to. But in these moments, he doesn't always choose to do that because sometimes that's for our good. And we need to know that it's not gospel plus comfort. It's just the good news of what Jesus did for us. Sometimes we create the gospel of, um, the false gospel of gospel plus ease of life. For some, it's money, right? And just the buck stops there. Um, For some, it's money. But for some, it's much more subtle. For some, it's a husband who will lead me perfectly or a wife who will serve our family perfectly or kids that will follow the Lord from birth and cause me no problems, right? We know that no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. Both can't be king of your life. But what about the more subtle things, right? How do I know if this is me? How do I know if I bought into this? The answer is this. Does it affect your joy? Not not your happiness, but your joy. Those are two different things. So when your husband fails you, when your wife fails you, when your friend fails you, do you take on an attitude of complaining, an attitude of discontentment regarding uh, your relationship or your life? And does how you treat your spouse or your friend change when they fail you? That's the question. The gospel tells us what? Right? What do we know about the gospel? The gospel's full of what? Everything we just looked at. Undeserved forgiveness, right? Sacrificial love, an outpouring of God's grace. What's grace? Right? It's giving them what they don't deserve. Right? That's how God loved us when we hated him, when we rebelled against him. And if that's not your response and failure in a relationship, then you've added to the gospel or you've demonstrated you don't believe it because you won't live it. Right? And we all fall short and we all fail in these ways. Sometimes we create a false gospel of gospel plus works. Right? We've talked about this one before. It's most closely seen in people believing that they need to clean their life up on their own and then get serious with God. Right? I'll just stop smoking and then I'll come back to God. I'll stop getting drunk and then I'll come back to God. I'll stop watching pornography and then I'll get right with God. I'll control my own anger and then I'll get right with God. I'll control my own tongue and then I'll get right with God. You could go on and on and on in the list. That's not the gospel, people, right? This is an improper response to guilt. Guilt over sin is a good thing. Guilt that keeps us from running to God for his forgiveness, his grace, and his strength is a false gospel. Got one more for us. Sometimes we create the false gospel of gospel 
plus laziness, right? God died for me, and he said that he's going to bless me, right? God's just going to bless me, so I don't need to work hard. Why would I do that? Remember what it said in Colossians 3.23? Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, not for men. Or I would encourage you, Google Proverbs, right? Google Proverbs and laziness and see what comes up. God has a lot to say about laziness. The gospel tells us that we work hard because our work properly calibrated in our heart is worship and glory to God. Christ died for a reason. Let's not nullify the grace of God by knowingly or unknowingly adding to the blood of Jesus. And so Paul's summary his conclusion, what he wants you to remember is that Christ died for a reason, for your freedom in Christ given by grace. Let's explore how he got there, right? In verses 12 to 13, we saw um, the problem, right? Peter stopped eating with Gentiles when the Jews told him to, so Paul rebukes him. In verse 15 through 16, he continues his argument. He presses the question of, is it really sinful to eat with Gentiles? In light of the gospel, Paul says, yes, we are Jews, not Gentile sinners. But in light of the gospel, we know that we aren't just justified by the law. Through, it's through the work of Jesus. And so what does that make all of us? Sinners, right? So it doesn't make sense for sinners to give up eating with sinners because they are sinners. Right? He's like, that makes no sense. Instead, what he argues is that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we believe in Jesus as God's son, right, our Messiah, Savior, King, we're justified. And you see it a bunch there in the text. And you might be saying, what does that mean? Let's talk about it for a few moments. Justification conveys the idea of legal proceedings, right, of a courtroom. And I want to give, just give you a little bit of background to it, right? We see in Deuteronomy 25, verse 1, this is the role of a judge, right? This is what a Jew knew was in the law concerning the role of a judge. And what does a, a good judge do? The same thing we'd say. They don't acquit the guilty, right? That's what a good judge would do. And then in 2 Chronicles 6, 23, this is Solomon praying to God. And he says, may you judge your servants, condemning the wicked man by bringing what he has done on his own head and by providing justice for the righteous, by rewarding him according to his own righteousness, right? In the Jewish mind, this was God's role, right? That he would act as a perfect, just judge. And just judges do what? What you deserve, you get. What you deserve, you get. If you're innocent, you deserve that, right? You, if you are guilty, you deserve that. And then in Isaiah 50, verse 7 and 8, um, we see that Israel longed to be justified by God. Look at that word there in the bottom of verse 8. It says, who has a case against me. What language is that? That's courtroom language. What are they talking about? Justification. Israel wanted to be justified by God. And then an absolutely shocking language, God says this in Romans 4, 5. He says, but to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. That would have been absolutely shocking to people. Right? That should be shocking to us, that God tells us that as the perfect judge, he chooses by his grace, even though a judge's job is to judge the guilty and to give them that what they deserve, that he's no longer going to count as guilty, no longer going to count as sinners, right? people who are guilty, but who trust in his son. But instead, he's going to count them as righteous. He's going to count them as innocent because of their faith in 
Jesus, even though they don't deserve it. So when the judge looks across the courtroom, right, when we put our faith in Jesus, it's like Jesus stands in between us and the judge. And now the judge doesn't see us and all of our guilt and all the things that are wrong with us. Instead, he sees the righteousness, the perfection, the innocence of Jesus. This is justification. And where is this good theology found in the Old Testament that Paul's trying to show them? Right? He's trying to show them that it was there all along, Judaizers. You missed it in Isaiah 53. We know in Isaiah 53 that it's all about Jesus, right? If you read it. And Jesus was the one that Israel was longing to be justified by. Look what it says. After his anguish, he will see the light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify, see that word there? Many. And he will carry their iniquities. This was made true in Jesus. What they were longing for was made true in Jesus. And this is what he's trying to show them. Right? Good theology should lead to right living. So that's what he means by justified. And then in verse 18 and 19, he tells them, so if sinners, if we're justified by faith in Jesus, it makes no sense to rebuild the barrier between Jew and Gentile. Right? Jesus has clearly obliterated those things. Right? And then in verse 19, he says he died to the law. That means he was released from the binding of the authority of the law. And instead he lives to God. So he's saying, once again, people, it'd be ridiculous to bind yourself back to that thing that you've been released from. And then in verse 20, we see this. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our good friend, Dr. Craig Brennan, has some excellent thoughts on this, he tells us that Galatians 2.20 teaches us that we can represent, resemble, and reflect God because of Christ. And look at all those eyes in there. None of those eyes, they're not about I, right? They're about what Jesus has done. And I want you to look at it with all the different colors with me. What's the yellow, right? That's our identity in Christ as believers. And why can we have identity in Christ? It's the pink, right? It's because of the irreversible work of Christ. And then the green, right? What does the green say, right? This tells us that God knows us. He's our identity, right? It's whose we are, and therefore it's who we are, right? We are God's. We are God's children. And so we have a hope that actually comes from the inside out because Christ lives in us. The red, this is our intentionality for Christ. The blue, our interdependency on Christ. And the orange, the influence of Christ through me. What miraculous truth. As we close, let's close with this. But Christ died for a purpose, right? Paul rarely actually uses individualistic language in the New Testament. Most of the time, he's using us. He's talking to us as a church, but here he makes it very personal, right? What does he say? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. I want you to try to wrap your heart around the idea that Jesus loves you, Christian. He gave himself for you, person who doesn't yet believe in God because he is love. Don't nullify the grace that God showed you. Don't add to the gospel 
what's not there. Show that right thinking about God compels you to worship him with everything because Christ died for a reason. Let's pray together. God, you are so good. I pray that this doesn't get old. God, I pray that our hearts would be blown away. I'll pray this every week, that our hearts would stand in awe of what you have done for us, what you put in your word to show us that you, the God of the universe who created everything, cares about me, would give up everything for me, would send your son to die in my place. God, that is wild. But thank you. Thank you so, so much for the love that you poured out on the cross. God, I pray that we would wrap our heads around this truth that we are known by God. It's one of the greatest truths of the gospel, that we are known with all of our faults, with all of our failings, with all the awful, horrible things that we've done that nobody else even knows about. And yet God says, I still would die for you. I still love you. I still want to welcome you as my son or my daughter. I pray that there's someone today that might accept that truth. Lord, we love you. Pray that you'd be with us as a church where we go share this truth with our community in Muskoka, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.